Unconscious Bias Project. Hey everybody, we have one heck of an amazing podcast um, in store for you today. We talked about community, we talked about divisiveness, we talked about just thinking about diversity as a source of richness, how direct and immediate action is just as critical as building relationships and giving space to trust over time. It's going to be a real treat and I'm so excited for y'all to listen. Enjoy. Hola a todos, Lynette and Alexis here, your co-hosts of the Unconscious Bias Project podcast, both she, her pronouns, bringing you impactful stories and interviews from our communities. We have our favorite people on to share their experiences, viewpoints, and the topics that matter to them the most so that we can all support each other. And before we kick off, we would like to encourage everyone to learn about the Ohlone people and the current shell mound protests to defend their life heritage, and rights. Unconscious Bias Project is based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, which is unceded ancestral homeland belonging to the Ramaytush Ohlone and Muwekma Ohlone peoples. Please support our work by supporting them too. And now I'd like to introduce our wonderful guest, Rohan. Yay! So Rohan Jolie, pronouns they, sha, and da, is the founder of the Blasian March, a solidarity movement for Black, Asian, and Blasian communities through education on parallel struggles with racial injustice and mutual celebration. Independent of the Blasian March, they co-organized with a team of women of color the End Violence Towards Asians United Against White Nationalism rally, as well as the Protect Asian Lives Gathering in 2021. In addition to their prolific activism, Rohan is a professional dancer and writer with performances at the New Bedford Festival Theater, Victoria Ballet Theater, Circa Pintig, and writing featured on Them.us. So welcome, Rohan. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. So uh, for those avid listeners out there and people that really follow UVP, um, you will recognize Rohan from our uh, Stop API Hate and Activate Outreach event earlier this year, uh, which was super cool. Um, But before we talk uh, more about that, I want our listeners to know about the Blasian March. What is the Blasian March? Wow, that is a good question. Um, you know, when I first like saw that, I was like, oh, I'll just give the usual like <laughs> mission statement. But now, like, what is it? I I honestly do not know sometimes. Like, because <laughs> the thing is, like, it does center as a vision around Black Asian solidarity, but I'm always constantly thinking about, you know, so many other um, Black Asian solidarity icons, initiatives like Grace Lee Boggs and her work and how she said we have to reimagine everything. And, you know, sometimes the Blasian March, it is, there's such an evolution to it. So at first it was supposed to be just a one-time offshoot of Black Lives Matter, but was more inclusive to Asian Americans. But with the rise of Stop Asian Hate, with the, you know, 
greater political awareness of the Asian American experience alongside the Black um, experience here on this stolen land, it has evolved into so many things. Um, it's, It's a space for joy. It's a space for healing. It's a space for what I hope to be honest conversation um, and a space um, just to really continue the legacy of these icons um, that I can only emulate in this very, very small way (laughs) through in-person marches, um, through healing circles for Black Asians, you know, so many other projects we have that are constantly reassessing what is solidarity and how do we reach it. This question about what is solidarity is so important as we keep making sure that we have everyone within our communities, right, represented and are fighting for everybody within our communities. And that includes any of the intersectional identities that are within it, right? Right, right, exactly. And for me, there's a constant reassessment of like, understanding that solidarity is a word that we have learned through English, which is a colonizer language. So as we have seen earlier this year, with like, you know, media creating so many false stories, such white mythology around Mm -hmm. um, Black Asian relations, we see Mm -hmm. that sometimes we tend to build solidarity through a colonial white lens. Sometimes I feel we really need to start looking at solidarity as an idea that is rooted in our intersectional history to borrow language from um, Kimberly Crenshaw and her idea of intersectionality. I think that's really interesting and important. And it's something that I don't think I, I definitely, I'll fess up to, I definitely hadn't really considered it in that way of how, um, you know, I think up until like maybe eight, eight years ago or something, I hadn't really considered um, how we shape, activism, how we shape policy, um, how we shape programs to, you know, uplift, support, empower, you know, whatever, um, people that are underrepresented, people that have been oppressed. It, it is often through a white lens and it is often through a colonial lens, sort of like, I just think it's such an, it's such an interesting thing to consciously note and reposition an easy, I guess, <laughs> give me example that pops up for me um, was the uh, Pink Hats March, right? That um, happened uh, when when Trump, or was it before Trump or as Trump came into power or whatever? There was the the Pink Hats March, and it was it went viral. There were all these uh, people that were knitting pink hats, and they were going out on a march. And the idea is that it was like women, a women's march, and it was women marching against Trump. And it was like, it, I was, it was all over the place. It was, it was international. It spread everywhere. But so anybody that has a vagina that's not white is not going to have necessarily pink, pink, pink lips on their vagina, right? And <laughs> not everybody that's a woman is yeah. going to have a vagina. And it was just such, it was such a mess. and. For our listeners, like maybe considering this for the first time, it is just such, it's so ingrained into how we talk about women, how we talk about feminism, to think about like bodies and reproductive rights. But like not everybody that identifies as women 
cares about reproduction. Not everybody that identifies as women has a uterus or plans to get pregnant or, you know, it just, it, it's such a, it's such a narrowly defined way of, of thinking of, of gender and coming back to, to talk about um, Black Lives Matters and um, sort of a lot of the activism, which I mean, was, was awesome to see um, in this time, you know, really thinking about the intersectionality. That's, that's one of the things that really struck me when I first started learning about um, the movement, the action, the programs that you're cultivating is you didn't just stop at Black and Asian. You were like, no, 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 and queer. And, you know, any intersection of Blasian with disabilities, like, let's not forget that, you know, one category, two categories, three categories doesn't exclude, you know, I don't know, 50 others or, 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 a you know, a shifting spectrum of identities, right? Like, you know, why do we have to define ourselves in such a way when we created, and I say we as like general, we, you know, have created programs that are like, oh no, to uplift black people, to empower women, to, and it's like, well, maybe it's not the women that haven't had the power. Maybe it's not the black people that don't have the resources. Maybe it's because there is that history of oppression and we don't necessarily have to define it through the white lens of like, oh, you need help and I'm going to go help you. It's like, let's examine it through understanding like, okay, there's a historical context that is, that is forced us to, you know, identify through the color of our skin, for example, or through our express identity. However, that, that looks acknowledge that, but not make it the definition and the be all end all, right? Like, how about healing? How about community? How about the ways in which we are so, so similar? How about, you know, I have a very different experience from you, um, you know, listeners and <laughs> folks on this podcast. It doesn't mean I can't, I can't empathize. I can't learn about your struggles and, and see how I can support in sort of modern movements that I've witnessed there's not a ton of movements that so start in the outset as being intentionally intersectional and then stay intersectional. And I think that's really powerful. Mm, thank you for that affirmation because you totally just like sprung up some of my memories um, attending the women's marches. I went to the first year and the second year. For me, I definitely resonate with what you're saying about, you know, how we only understand feminism quite honestly through a male gaze we understand women's rights through only the context of a woman's body which really subjugates bodies and body types to you know a certain narrative when you know as you said women's rights intersects everything i remember the second time i went to the women's march and you know couldn't help but notice that there was some segregational divides <laughs> Um, and I remember I was a little kind of like, I wasn't feeling it because I did not see women who looked like my mother there. I didn't see women who looked like, you know, the trans black women I organized with. I didn't see women like the Filipina queer women I organized with back when I was in Chicago. So this also the Chicago Women's March. Um, we came across this contingent of Palestinian organizers 
And they were in a circle and dancing and um, they were chanting the name of a girl. I believe it was, it was yeah, Mimi, and she was a child whom uh, Israeli police had arrested for standing up. I believe she was, if I remember correctly, protecting her brother or something. But the fact that the Women's March specifically moved around or avoided this Palestinian group that was chanting for a girl and was also chanting alongside Black women and chanting for Black Lives Matter, it to me was like, you know, this is the power of joy as a weapon that I just resonated with. And so I actually like disengaged from the Women's March because I was like, I mean, I'm glad I was here because now I have found a space where I see Black women and Palestinian people and Palestinian women sharing space and, and moving together. And I was like, wow, like this, this is so powerful and so incredible. And even though it was such a small bit of the march, it's the part of that day that I remember, you know? Wow, that's such a powerful memory. How did you get into activism? You said you, you organized, you've been a part of marches before. Sort of what got you into that activism? And then what, where were you like, you know what? I need to start a Blasian March and I'm going to make it in this intentionally intersectional way and like screw every other way that people want to (laughs) define us, like, you know, block us off into a section or whatever. This is just the way I'm going to do it. Oh, wow. Um, As I'm looking back, I'm realizing how coming into my activism is rooted in so much of my own just personal experience. Like, understanding that, you know, my parents, specifically my mother, was the kind of person who would, you know, be <laughs> be a black mom, do everything she could to keep her baby safe. And now that I look at Black Lives Matter movement and how, you know, that is the affirmation of black life, being a black parent <laughs> is a Black Lives Matter action. <laughs> like being a black parent, a parent of color that you know, loves their child and does everything they can to preserve the life of their child. That is an act of revolution. I keep telling people the fact that we are breathing, the fact that we are existing as we choose to exist in a way that Mm -hmm. honors our truths and honors our ancestors, that is an act of revolution. (laughs) Like every day I am alive is a revolutionary act because we live in a colonial state that thrives on our suffering and thrives on our extermination. So I would give a nod to my, my mother. <laughs> um, and um, she also is a Black Asian. She's um, Chinese and Filipina. And, you know, growing up, we grew up in Georgia, and we were very much involved in the Chinese communities. Uh, my mother worked, um, she was the Director of International Affairs and External Relations with the city of Atlanta. So I was always kind of like around international people revolving around intersectional spaces. Um, But I would definitely say, you know, she also exposed me to like black classical music and Chinese classical music. um, And we're both classical musicians. So like the framework she gave me, I think just gives like enough of my intellectual understanding from a very young age to be where I am now. 
And I think my first time doing like an actual like action, like protest action would have been junior year in college. There was a group called ANUP. It was the Asian Northwestern University Project. And basically it was a space to talk about you know, the Asian American experience on campus to talk about the Asian American history on campus. You know, it was through that group that I learned about um, the hunger strike that Asian American students did to get uh, an Asian American studies program. Um, you know, we had group circles to talk about our experiences. And um, at first, you know, I, I only identified as being a Jamaican American. Um, in high school, I went to an international school and then college was when I started to like sort of understand the context of race um, more. You know, lots of times I would, being raised to be very proud of my Asian heritage, that became a huge conflict um, with several communities. Being a Black Asian, you know, with, with the Asian communities, mm-hmm. there was this constant, oh, you can't be one of us because you're Black. or you know and then on you know people would literally forget i was filipino like people would be like oh thank you for your solidarity with our filipino communities i'm like um yes i am greatly in solidarity with my ancestors (laughs) who were dragged to the caribbean by the spanish yes yes okay thank you um hmm. and um the uh the black side of the community there is this constant very explicit verbal violence I experienced. I was anti-Asian. That was this sort of like denial that I could be Asian. Like people would say things like, you must hate being black. Um, someone asked if I was getting therapy. Yeah. Someone asked if I was, I was getting therapy uh, for my identity crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This just came up in casual conversation. Yeah. Hey, so um, are you getting like physical therapy for your knee and like, you know, therapy for your identity crisis? Because like, obviously, <laughs> like, what the? Ow. I'm so sorry. Photos of my great grandfather from China. Clearly, I, I'm having a dysmorphia issue. I don't know what's going on. Someone help me. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah, junior year. I had come just to understand that the community that I didn't belong specifically in a black community or Asian community or the LGBT community on campus. I belonged in a community that, that I made from hands that tends to be the folks who can live in a space of reciprocal affirmation that end up being mostly a lot of Asian folks were also mixed with other, you know, things. And so at this, there was one ANUP gathering the first gathering I went to, I felt that I was taking space. I didn't belong. Like, I was like, well, I am of like Chinese descent, but I feel like I'm a guest in this space. But it wasn't until the second gathering, I think it was like the last gathering before the actual protest on campus. And it was the first time I said to an entire room of people, I am Asian. Like, I was always like, I'm of this descent, of that stuff. But I was like, no, I am an Asian American. And I draw power in that, I, that truth. I, I am powerful in that truth. And so our first protest, um, we went up and down campus and it was great because it was also a celebration of Asian Americans. Um, and I got to do ballet at the protest <laughs> um, and it was just like so remarkable. And yeah, and then a year later there was an action um, for a black employee that the university had mistreated. 
And so like that part of me came out, but that's kind of where my roots in activism came from. And then that evolved into me getting involved with um, a Filipino group in Chicago called Anakwayan. And then me coming to New York um, after losing my day job. <laughs> um, that's super cool. I think for myself, I also started in activism in college and similarly started gaining um, understanding of uh, racism and, and what that means. So how did that feed into how you built Blasian March? Was it like super intentional? You're like, okay, this is what I'm going to define. These are going to be our codes of conduct. This is who I'm going to have. Or were you like, I need to see this space and I need to nucleate it now? I'm definitely going to say combination of the two. Um, so the Blasian March was kind of born out of a actually pretty traumatic incident while organizing um, on the ground. Yeah, I was organizing with a predominantly, you know, cishet um, Asian American circle of people. And, you know, I was trying to figure out, you know, we are, we are in the middle of the pandemic. This is around August time. So there's still a lot of like fury and societal rage over not just the death of George, murder of George Floyd, but the murder of Tony McDade um, and all the other people that I can't name off the top of my head right now. Breonna Taylor, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality, <laughs> right? I mean, of right. course, there were the ones that, that made the news the most. Right. Uh, Tony, Brianna, George. And so I was trying to organize within this uh, circle of Asian American folks who were predominantly Chinese. I was trying to figure out, you know, how can we tie in this into Black Lives Matter? How can we bring this together? And my ideas were kind of put to the side, which is fine. I understand. Um, sometimes people need to have those conversations within their community first. Day of the action, my safety was put at risk. Because of that, I felt the need to create my own space. Um, and that was my healing process. Um, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do solidarity my way. <laughs> um, and because of that, I will constantly acknowledge that the work I have done is very directly inspired by the Filipina and other Asian queer organizers I worked with in Chicago, as well as a lot of the Black trans organizers I worked with here in New York. Because, you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement, even though the founders are all women, even though two of the founders are queer, we see white narratives and white mythology taking over the spaces. You know, we, we, we forget that Black Lives Matter means the affirmation of all Black life, no matter what. That means, you know, uh, equitable housing, universal housing, universal health care, um, immigration justice, LGBT rights. Where Black life is, it intersects with everything. So, you know, why these things aren't being included in mainstream media is, once again, in my opinion, to assert a certain control over the narrative and to inspire segregation. So you see in the Black Lives Matter movement, or at least outside revolving around the movement, in my opinion, a lot of white media only emphasizing um, narratives of police violence against cishet black men. And 
I have seen on the ground how that translates into a hierarchy of gender, a hierarchy of sexuality, and a hierarchy of ability. Um, because, you know, we are, I'm, I'm right now reading an essay by um, Talila Lewis, and Talila talks a lot about how Talila Lewis is a, a Black disability justice organizer. And the essay really capitulates and highlights and emphasizes how the vast majority, over half of police violence is enacted on people who have varying degrees of disability. So when we see these hierarchies of power and privilege, it manifests in interpersonal violence and it manifests in the erasure of people from the movement. So here in New York, what I loved seeing was so many Black trans folks just starting their own action and really trying to fight that erasure from the story. And so for me, it was kind of like, not only did I experience this incident of, you know, where my safety as the only Black person on the team, the only visibly queer person on the team was put at risk, but you know, if, if I don't do something, if I don't make it explicitly clear on the ground, in the photos, in the videos, what I am, I am participating in my own erasure. So creating the Blasian March, over time, I began to realize this is how I counter this erasure. This is how I have countered that sort of interpersonal violence I've experienced. The fact that I have experienced anti-Asianness and anti-Blackness because of the color of my skin and the texture of my hair from both sides of the community. This is how I have been like, you know, we are going to build a space that one is grounded on intersectionality. So we are going to have to constantly reimagine what intersectionality even looks like. That means having Black trans speakers. That means um, if folks are comfortable having disabled speakers, our pride rally, we had, you know, Asian speakers, South uh, Indo-Caribbean speakers, there was one woman, um, and she is both Native American and Asian American. So seeing not only that, but also being like, this is also part of the storytelling, and this is so important for the storytelling, because if I'm not proactively telling my story and putting it documenting it, putting it on the map, I will be erased from this whole story as well. And I think about that storytelling and also think about like, I think about narratives a lot in terms of, for instance, trans narratives, that there is, you know, for instance, one dominant trans narrative that, you know, oh, we hate our bodies growing up and then we transition and then everything is sunshine and roses. There is this narrative of deep-seated self-loathing of our own bodies that isn't true for all trans people. I love hearing people from various backgrounds adding their voices because, of course, there's never just one simple narrative. And so getting to hear a multitude of narratives gives more and more depth also to those communities as we understand multitude of people within them. And that's one of the things I really like about hearing your story as well. To jump on the narrative bandwagon, it's one of the things that obviously Alexis and I are in the business, let's say, of diversity, equity, inclusion, consulting. And the way that we, we position ourselves is like, okay, we're doing 
we're, we're using data centered methods, we're using evidence, but like one thing that people often think, um, both in like science fields or, you know, in just like in, in media is this idea that, you know, stories aren't data, right? Like a narrative, somebody's life experience isn't as critical a piece of evidence as like a number representing the experience of millions of people, right? Somehow that difference in the value of even one person's narrative of hearing that one person's voice, that one person's experience is often just as critical to not, not just like communicate the, the diversity, the variety of, of life and experience that contributes to, to someone's narrative to their, you know, to their day to day. But it's also like, it can be the thing that changes somebody's mind. Like this is one of the powerful things I think in both DI consultancy in in policy building and activism is to being able to connect narrative to numbers and to action. That's, that's an important thing that narrative that experience is, is data. It is fact. It is evidence. It is, it is a reality. And the more we can, we can find spaces to broaden the narratives we're taking in. Really, I think we're just all going to be better off. All right. Thank you um, so much, Rohan, for all of this great discussion. Um, we're going to take a moment to go to a quick break where Seth is going to give us some announcements and then we will be right back. We'd like to give a big shout out to Bloomerang, who helps nonprofits interface productively with their donor base. They're sponsoring the next season of the UBP podcast, and we're grateful for their generous support. We'd also like to thank Cielo and Bloomerang for sponsoring our Be a Better Imposter event, and UBP at Cal for sponsoring Stop AAPI Hate and Activate event, both from our Breaking Bread and Bias outreach campaign that just concluded. To learn more about the outreach campaign, watch recordings, and download resources, check them out on our website at ubproject.org slash resources and click on the events category. Make sure to sign up for the UBP newsletter at ubproject.org if you haven't already so you can keep up with the latest news and get informed about the latest releases. Hi everyone, this is Seth and I am one of the audio editors and volunteers here at UBP. The Unconscious Bias Project brings creative, accessible, evidence-based solutions for unintentional bias to academic, technological, governmental organizations, and beyond. We sustain a welcoming home for inquisitive and creative minds and encourage a growth mindset, working by the model of 0% guilt, 100% empowerment. Please subscribe or follow our Facebook and Instagram for the latest in events and how you can learn more and be involved. Also, take a look and check out our guest website and learn more. Look for that information in the description section of your podcast or on our website. This episode is brought to you by an ally of the podcast, Bloomerang, the donor database trusted by tens of thousands of fundraisers. For donor management, email marketing, online giving, and more, Bloomerang has you covered. Beyond helping fundraisers enhance their donor relationships, Bloomerang is committed to elevating the voices of BIPOC nonprofit professionals. To learn more about contributing to our blog, visit bloomerang.co slash blog slash write.
Welcome back, everyone. We are still so excited to be here with Rohan. Picking up on about the Blasian March, who is it that you work with? How do you find these allies to work with? And what kinds of other projects go with that? So I, I definitely will say that I work with intersectional feminists. Because I am kind of of the belief that this intersectional work Therefore, the people who are doing the work need to have that sort of intersectional mentality um, as we go along, you know? Um, and that means virtually anyone who is able to contribute um, to the process, center joy in the process, um, center healing in the process, because, you know, a lot of us folks who are marginalized, um, oppressed, um, or as Rosemary Campbell Stevens says, of the global majority, we are carrying so much weight um, on our shoulders, weight that, weight that we don't even recognize because it's not weight that we have personally experienced. Some of that weight is inherited trauma. Um, some of that is maybe a, a paternal experience that's being taught to you because of certain violence they experienced. and. It's, it's so important to recognize that as we do this work, as we are you know, working for our global liberation, we're also working on our internal liberation. So for me, that means recognizing my trauma and then recognizing that as much as I have in inherited trauma, I have also inherited the joy of my ancestors. I have inherited the power of my ancestors. So I think these are the kind of folks I like to work with. Um, just because ideologically we're on the same page, um, we are able to, um, as my safety lead, Kalyan Mendoza, um, always says, we work at the pace of trust and not the pace of hate. That piece is something that I feel I constantly battle with. So personally, thinking of like, you know, I... I I see things things happening in Palestine and in Colombia, you know, on like in the park nearby in Debo's Triangle where like a kid got shot and I'm like I need to do something right now and I need to like act immediately and I need to I need to do something I need to I need to to tackle this. Um and while I think there is always space, right, for immediate action, you know, obviously if somebody's in harm, do something, right? If if there is like a something that isn't being named or or some uh, you know, terrible thing, like, like the murder of, of George Floyd, like the murder of Tony McDade, you know, that adding a voice saying like, this is wrong is important. And I think what's so, what's so powerful is to combine that with, with the long term, with giving space, with, with building trust. It's one of the things that is also a sort of like push and pull and doesn't have to be binary. It's a push and pull in our work is Sometimes we get folks that are like, okay, I, I we, we want to make a diversity statement. We want to um, support Black Lives Matter. We need like a talk right now. And then we're going to do a bunch of workshops. And then we're, you know, and then we're going to do this. And then we're going to do that for our like, I don't know, 500 person company. And it's like, is this the first time you're going to talk about this stuff? Like, what is everybody saying about it? Like, what's the temperature? How do people feel? Like, have you, have you considered that? And I think you know, oftentimes I find that our clients' leading organizations aren't really seeing how important 
building that trust and making that space for giving a little space for feelings and and building you know empathy and understanding of like what they're bringing into their organization that maybe hasn't confronted it before or that maybe has like a history where it you know things didn't go very well or you know that's sort of like really giving space to learning and and being together and you know whatever taking getting a setback and then moving forward you know whatever you want to call it like giving some space for the dynamics of what it is to work on your organizational culture on your your policies on on thinking about how people are in relation um with each other in in an organization is i would consider and granted i haven't been part of any major organizing of marches or anything like that beyond like you know college <laughs> college scale it's similar to to activism right it's similar to doing to doing change on on local and national um and even international scales it's you got to build those relationships you got to trust you got to see where are things that can be pushed? Where are things that can be healed that need to be healed that need to be addressed before making, making sweeping changes or as you're making sweeping changes, right? Right, right, exactly. And like, there's always room, in my opinion, for rapid response, direct action. There's always room for that. But for me, I only have capacity to do that if I am working with a team that I have really built long-term trust with i've really been in community with way which where i'm like okay we're getting this done in seven or eight days like um the end of violence towards asians action um that was done in literally like the group chat was started i think like eight days before the actual action itself so like everyone in that chat it's like we've all been organizing together we've all seen each other on the ground we all know each other like it was so quick and easy to get that done because we trust each other and we know what that trust is. And uh, your statement just really, it reminded me of um, Deepa Iyer's social change ecosystem map, because I feel like there's this really weird white mythology <laughs> around activism and organizing that assumes that it's always this angry, dangerous march that you know <laughs> will end in damaged property and you know fire and brimstone and you know this is part of the work too i mean i'm sure for people who did production is not that simple but <laughs> but like <laughs> like but you know when i started to really understand deepa Iyer's map and look at how there's weavers there's frontline responders, there's storytellers, there's healers, there's caregivers, you know, there are so many ways to do the work that is also intersectional. There's so many ways to reimagine the work um, that is based on your capacity and that's based on your joy. So, you know, I always am trying to remind people, if you don't take joy in marching, don't march. You can do something else. You know, you can I don't know, donate books to, to uh, some, some community that needs literature access, or you can do the phone calls, write your Congress. There are so many ways to do this work, you know? Buried in what you're saying is also just this concept that like, sometimes I feel like I will see 
reactions to a number of you know different world events and then suddenly the news will latch on and look at a reaction such as you know organizing a march so fast and look on with absolutely befuddled like how did this happen so fast it just kind of like sprung out of nowhere and it's like no it didn't spring out of nowhere it sprung out of coalition building out of relationship building for years beforehand this stuff has been ready it has been practiced it has been waiting in the wings and so it is that coalition building that enables that fast action right exactly and you know things like this podcast is part of you know that community building that 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 seed planting that when there is another spike or when there is something that requires a fast reaction you know these connections are already made and this is something i am trying to realize is kind of becoming one of my top priorities <laughs> um just like as an individual so like maybe i've read too much octavia butler and dystopic <laughs> science fiction future just seems so imminent right much. now <laughs> true never, never too, too much. much octavia butler please read more <laughs> um looking at the the collapse of the u.s empire is seeing really in slow-mo real time the collapse of capitalism and understanding that you know this colonial state this colonial white society this this invasion society was never rooted in anything sustainable so you see these catastrophes that are literally built by capitalism you see how the horrible invasion of afghanistan has just resulted in this catastrophe you see how um corporations have been stripping Haiti of land resources and the mining, which has contributed to more extreme earthquakes. And now you see these influx of, you know, refugees from both countries trying to come to this stolen land only to find out that, you know, the white colonial state is unwilling to share, even though it's kind of like, well, you made this mess, so I don't understand. <laughs> um, so for me, it's like, it's so much more crucial right now that we start to build these connections across communities because as we see the collapse of the empire, it's so much more important that we, as oppressed and marginalized communities, as people who are anti-racist, we have to learn how to take care of each other and build those relations so that when there's an emergency, we can take care of each other as quickly as possible. I've recently seen a meme going around my friends on Facebook. That's like, why is it that when people think about societal collapse, they hoard guns when they should be hoarding friends, when they should be building community, when they should be investing in local structures that can help each other? Right, right, exactly. Like. Um... I remember recently I came across the community garden and it was right after um, the devastation of Ida and folks were kind of like going through and seeing what the damage was to the garden. And it was just so beautiful that I walked in total stranger and they were just like, Oh, do you want grapes? Do you want this? Do you want that? 
I was having a conversation with one of them and he was kind of like, you know, everyone seems to be kind of like out for themselves. I'm sitting here like, but what you did to me just now is the kind of community care that we're going to need down the line. Because, you know, I got that food without having to engage in capitalism. That means that someone else can get food without these capitalist structures, you know? Yeah, I'm currently also reading um, Rebecca Solnit's A Paradise Built in Hell that talks about a lot of these themes and how, like, we have an amazing capacity to help each other out if we harness it. Exactly, exactly. And that is, I'm going to borrow language from my good friend Soleil Yu. She's also another organizer on the West Coast. Soleil Yu uses this term called political imagination. And when she said that, I was just like, oh, like this is something I really, really like resonate with because, you know, on the ground for the Blasian March, it's like not only are we countering white narratives about, um, you know, Black Asian tension, Black Asian relations, we're also, oh, is, do y'all hear the ambulance? I will wait. <laughs> the joys of a city. The joys of a city. <laughs> And that's okay. I mean, we're also in a pandemic. We're not in a recording studio. So it's like True. children, cats, yeah. dogs, roommates, roommates, large studs in the ceiling. It's fine. <laughs> okay. I think. I think yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so my good friend, Soleil Yu, she's a political educator on the West Coast. Um, she uses this term called political imagination. And I really resonated with her language um, because, you know, on the ground for the Blasian March, it's not only are we trying to counter, you know, white mythology about Black Asian relations, we're also providing a new way of thinking, or at least hoping people can start to have a new political imagination about what is possible and about what has already happened between our communities. Um, so for us, on the um, back end, it's fundraising for, you know, the food. It's fundraising for artists and speakers. It's also collaborating with other organizations to provide free PPE, free menstrual care, free contraception, um, also providing housing resources. And because we imagine or we hope to see it, present all of this as free to the community, I hope that this will help build a new imagination of, yes, it's possible for all these things to be free. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about um, how sometimes there are myths and falsehoods that serve to divide folks by race, religion, ethnicity, age, etc. What kinds of falsehoods do you see out there that try to prevent intercommunity solidarity and how do we counter those myths? Mm, yeah, definitely earlier this year, um, you know how in the media um, there were a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes that were only emphasized when the perpetrator was Black. And this emphasized the white mythology that, you know, Black people are responsible these hate crimes and this violence um but then when you see you know the reports coming out i remember i think one of the earliest ones to be released was the virulent hate project at university of michigan and they found that among you know 
instance of anti-Asian violence where race was confirmed, I think it was like 89.6% of the perpetrators were white. And these facts, this data, these stories were not being amplified in white media and white narratives. So for me on the ground, it's the experience of these constantly, I'm constantly being forced to counter this white mythology with constant truth. That has been one of the most frustrating <laughs> falsehoods and story arcs because then it creates a very difficult um, space where sometimes I feel like I'm starting all over because, you know, as soon as we make a step forward, all of a sudden this narrative comes out, this mythology is emphasized, and then it's like we go back to square one about, okay, let's start from the very beginning. This is one of a few incidents. This is not, this, this emphasizes white mythology around Black people, you know, the assumption that Black people are violent or whatever. I think one mythology um, that is due to erasure, I would say, is that Black Asian solidarity is something new. Afri African and Asian relationships, African and Asian um, trade, commerce, exchange of art, wealth, religion, that is an ancient practice well before the Europeans even realized the earth was round. So <laughs> I am always trying to remind people that there's centuries long documentation. There are Chinese emperors who were trading with Africa. There was, you know, the Hindustan empires trading with, with African empires. And here on Turtle Island, our collective resistance began as soon as the invasion started. So I'm thinking about Frederick Douglass, who advocated for Asian immigration. I'm thinking about huge icons during the civil rights era, like Grace Lee Boggs, a Chinese American, and her Black husband, James. I'm thinking of Bayard Rustin, who studied Gandhian techniques of civil disobedience and incorporated that into the civil rights movement. I also have to acknowledge, you know, queer icons like Bayard Rustin, but also like Kiyoshi Kuromiya, who was an openly gay Japanese American who marched with King on Selma and in 1970 was the only openly gay panel member at the um, Black Panther Party convention. So like this, especially in 2021, um, there were so many people I came across who had the, the white mythology so ingrained that there is no such thing as Black Asian solidarity, that they were trying so hard to reinvent the wheel. And when it's like, sometimes, honey, we need to sit <laughs> and read a few books or, or, or go to a lecture and, and understand that there is so much recorded history of this solidarity work. And this is a beautiful way to engage with our elders. It's a beautiful way to engage with our ancestors. And um, it's something that we will have to continue to do until we have found true liberation. Talking about narratives, right? And taking, uh, you know, whatever major news outlets spin on a story as the fact, right? The headline is meant to inspire an, an emotion. Whatever, whatever it is, it's meant to, to force you to click, to want to click, to want to know what happened. 
it's so easy to be misleading, right? You know, even on coverage of, of trials, right? Or the images, you know, this is a classic one. Images of, you know, when Black people are killed, for example, when Indigenous people are killed. Oh, you know, you know, they only have like a mugshot. Yeah, right. That person had a life, right? You know, <laughs> or they're like, well, so-and-so was a drug user. So then they deserved it, right? Like, no. Um, yeah, the, the divisiveness, that narrative. It, it even, I remember seeing, I don't remember when it was during the pandemic, but it was like, it was something like millennials think that hair parts, you know, on the side are passe or something. It was just like, it was a dig between like millennials and Gen Xers. And like, I, I just like, I was like, seriously, like, I, why? Like, yeah, sure. Right. I grew up with different cartoons than they did. I, I grew up knowing a time when, you know, there wasn't internet and yeah. Okay. But like, that doesn't mean that, you know, my hair part is going to prevent me from, <laughs> from talking to, to someone else or that we have so little in common, you know, it just, just these artificial ideas of how different we are. And I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've found in this work that we do is that the pushback of like, you know, the kind of the colorblind pushback of like, if we're taught to look at how different we are, then we can never possibly work together, right? We can never be in relationship with each other. And it's like, get over yourself. Like, <laughs> you know, as, as like a scientist, there is more genetic difference, like, like actually encoded in our DNA genetic difference between everybody in one block than there is between like two people of different races. Like there's just, it's a non-reality right? It's not true that we are too different to empathize with each other's struggles, to, to connect, to see each other's humanity. Of course, we all have different lives. Of course, we all had different upbringings, life experiences. We were treated differently because of who we are, what we look like, what we do, what we don't do, how we sound, even what we can and what we can't do, how we move, like all of those things like even you mentioning like I'm a classical musician. It's like, you know, somebody's going to peg you for for some some stereotype on that, right? Alone. And and these are these are differences, but like there are differences that and I know it's going to sound so foxy and totally <laughs> totally like some sort of greeting card, but it's like it's their differences that make the richness of life, right? It's like the the different comfort foods that we have, the different languages, music, like whether we had no parents or chosen families or, you know, what values we have, those are all those are all the richness that we have and, and seeing the the common humanity, seeing the common, you know, common struggles uh, and and love and joy is I think it's that's that's where the power is, right? Right, exactly. Like there, there is so much power in our, our differences. There's, I mean, you look at a, a, a beautiful rug, a beautiful weaving. Every thread could be a different color. Every thread could be a different size. They all, as individuals, still contribute to the beautiful rug. Or every brushstroke on a painting, it can be a different color and different whatever. And it still contributes to a beautiful painting. And 
I think for me, it's like bringing together so many different communities means that we bring together so many different experiences. And that is really where so much growth is possible. I remember um, talking on a panel um, one time and, you know, lots of folks just because of, you know, white narratives, white mythology, the erasure of the Asian American experience on this stolen land are very unfamiliar with the extreme violence um, Asian Americans and Asian immigrants have experienced. Um, you know, so when I was talking about um, lynchings of Chinese immigrants um, at the LA Chinatown massacre, um, and people were like, I had no idea that happened. Like, I had no idea that is, that is Asian American history. And that's a very difficult part of Asian American history. But you see how, even through our unique experiences, we still have parallel struggles within um, this stolen land, within the colonial state. What would you like to share with our listeners on how to build relationships between us and coalitions and be part of the activism to make change? Yeah, um, I would definitely say, once again, going to reflect what my safety lead says, work at the pace of trust, (laughs) not the pace of hate. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to add on the work will always be there. So do not rush. Mm -hmm. I know we live in a capitalist state where we are so trained to expect immediacy. You're expected to have the product within like 24 hours, but like the -hmm. work is still there. The work until we can abolish the colonial state and do something better, the work will still be there. So no need to rush. Um, I would also say working on solidarity means there has to be a lot of internal work, a lot of internal um, re-education on not just what is my experience, but what is someone else's experience. If that means I have to spend a weekend watching uh, the PBS docuseries Asian Americans as a mm-hmm. monoracial Black person, I have to do that to better understand what is the Asian American experience on this stolen land. And how does that story intersect with mine? Reflecting back on Deepa Iyer's um, map of um, change ecosystem, uh, I think what's really, really important is understanding that there is no one way to do this work. Um, mm-hmm. There is no one way to organize. Following yeah. Grace Lee Boggs's, we have to reimagine everything. We can reimagine the work. And so I definitely ask, Putting joy in, in, in the work is so crucial. Putting your talents in the work is so crucial. So like right now, um, not only in New York, but also um, there is a sibling Black Asian trans power rally happening in LA, um, also New Haven, the LA team, um, mm-hmm. because they're very involved in the art world. They're really trying to incorporate visual art in the space. I think that's amazing. That's beautiful. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a performing artist, so a lot of the, my actions will have performing arts incorporated into it to hopefully bring out new stories or um, help folks be inspired to reimagine or understand differently a Black or an Asian experience. Um, I think 
one of the most important things for me personally that I would um, recommend folks is um, learn your history and learn your history outside of the colonial state lens. Um, learn your history outside of the white gaze. Um, I am constantly referring back to um, the Philippine independence fighter, um, Jose Rizal, who said, um, no history, no self, no history, no self. So the first no history, no self is N-O history, N-O self. Um, and then the second line is K-N-O-W history, K-N-O-W self. I honestly think when you look at your history and root the work in the history, the intersectional feminist history, I think there's so much power there. There's so much power in recognizing that you are one of many heroes. You are one among generation after generation of resistance fighters. And there's a lot of power in understanding that truth about yourself. This is where we ask you for shout outs. Can you share with us whoever you want to amplify, whatever projects you're working on, people you want to thank? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. I'm definitely going to give a shameless plug um, for the Blazing uh -huh. March. Do it. Um, <laughs> Always we, plug. I'm going to give a shout out to Lee Painter Kim. Um, Lee is an amazing organizer on the West Coast who I am collaborating with for the LA Action. I definitely want to give a shout out to the New Haven contingent as well. I'm going to give a shout out to Sonera Suba. They are spearheading the New Haven Black Asian Trans Power Rally Action. So I am just going to shout out to them. I will also give a shout out to everyone who's been on the ground from the very beginning, um, Robin Ayers, Kalia Mendoza, Rally Tangonan, um, Kalea Mendoza. Uh, oh yeah, so many people. I just, the list goes on and on. I'm gonna stop there before I lose control. <laughs> but yeah, everyone who's been here from the very, very beginning and has not wavered in the support, thank you all so much. This was supposed to be a very, very small one-time action and uh, the Blasian March is this thing. <laughs> Whatever it is right now. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your thoughts and your story today with us. It's been a real pleasure having you as we knew it would be because you're excellent. Thank you so much, Rohan. That was really special. Thanks for listening. You can find more information and donate at unconsciousbiasproject.org. Dr. Lynette Mara, she, her, and Alexis Crone, she, her, are your host. Seth Beckman, he, they, is your editor. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us. We can be found on Facebook at Unconscious Bias Project, Twitter at UBP underscore STEM, LinkedIn, Instagram, or join our mailing list. UBP is a fiscally sponsored project of the Social Good Fund, a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you wish to sponsor us, please contact us in the Contact Us tab at unconsciousbiasproject.org.